December 7, 1941. A surprise Japanese aerial attack on the American naval base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii initiated the formal entry of the United States into the Second World War. Thousands were killed. The damage was extensive. In addition to those that died that day, the Pearl Harbor attack led to a far greater loss of life amongst the Allied forces. Since the start of the war, malaria had ravaged forces stationed in the West Indies, only held at bay by a wonder drug from the Dutch East Indies, modern-day Indonesia. The source of this? Plantations of the humble cinchona tree on the island of Java, where 90% of the world's quinine was sourced. Demand for this plant-based malaria cure roared during wartime, but by crippling the Allied defense through the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the capturing of Singapore, there was nothing to stop the Japanese from taking Java and cutting off supplies to their enemies in the West. In the effort to acquire the island's rich oil fields, Japan also denied its opponents one of the most crucial medicines in human history, and scientists were forced to seek out an alternative to the substance that had enabled Western colonization of the tropics for centuries. Cinchona has been called a tool of imperialism, and that's because quinine, which is the active antimalarial chemical found in the bark, was so important for empire, particularly across the 18th and 19th century. Today we find out how plants and medicines have changed the fortunes of nations and their roots from forest to pharmacy throughout history. We'll hear how the hunger for cures has transformed landscapes, seen powers rise and fall, and altered human history forever. Quinine started to gain extra significance for them, so to be able to control the quality and quantity of supply became very important. Plantations started to be grown in British India and Dutch Indonesia. And we'll hear what we can learn and how lives can be saved in the search for modern-day medicines. Plants are actually brilliant chemists. I'm James Wong, and welcome to Unearthed, mysteries from an unseen world from Royal Botanic Gardens Kew. Today, I'm finding out how one kind of tree changed the course of world history. The cinchona tree is native to South America. Myth has it that in 1630, the Spanish Countess of Cinchon visited Peru and fell ill with a fever. The substance given to cure her was the bark of cinchona, which we now know contains many useful substances, only one of which is quinine. And whilst the real story of how cinchona's healing properties first made it into medicine remains a mystery, there are plenty of clues to help us piece together some of that history. The Royal Botanic Gardens Kew has one of the largest collections of cinchona bark, in addition to herbarium specimens and a wealth of historical records from the 19th century, when quinine was transported around the world. It's this archive that makes Q so compelling for my first guest. I'm Kim Walker, and I am a PhD student at Q. I work in the Economic Botany Department, and I study their collections of cinchona bark. It does sound a bit dry, doesn't it, studying bark? But actually, if you're going to pick a bark, this is probably one of the most interesting ones in history. 
Cinchona bark contains quinine, which for over 300 years was the only known malaria treatment in Europe, and also is the flavouring in everybody's favourite cocktail, the gin and tonic, because it is the flavouring in tonic water. When we talk about malaria, it's quite difficult to picture a world before cinchona bark was in existence, because malaria wasn't something that was just found in remote locations. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just slightly out of living memory now. So no, not many people realise that we used to have malaria in Britain all the way up to the First World War. So tell me about the history of cinchona bark. How do we know that it contains quinine and that that's an effective treatment for malaria? Well, that's a really interesting question because when the Spanish entered South America, which is where cinchona comes from originally, across the eastern slopes of the Andes, before this period, malaria, or at least very severe forms of malaria, didn't exist. So as the Spanish come in, bringing malaria with them, and cinchona trees already grow in South America, it's not very clear who or when somebody connected that cinchona bark cures malaria. But it's likely that it would have been indigenous healers had really superior knowledge of local botanics and healing. And so at the coalface, as it were, where new diseases were entering the country and cinchona may have already been in use for other things, they would have put two and two together and found the treatment. We do know that was around about 1600. And by about the mid-1600s, cinchona back started being imported into Europe. Is this presumably because... Cinchona bark was really important for industry at one time. People wouldn't be able to conduct business across large parts of the world if you couldn't physically access them while staying healthy. Absolutely. So cinchona has been called a tool of imperialism. And that's because quinine, which is the active anti-malarial chemical found in the bark, was so important for empire, particularly across the 18th and 19th century. And so for many different countries within Europe who are interested in expanding into new territories and colonising areas such as India and parts of Africa, quinine was really important because unless you can control disease, uh, whenever you would go somewhere that may have something like malaria, you're more likely to die off than be able to, to enter those places. So how, how was quinine traditionally administered? Was it administered in tonic water? Tonic water came a little bit later in the 19th century, which is about the mid-1800s. But originally how Europeans started to use cinchona was in very traditional ways to use medicine, which is getting the bark, which is a very tough material, grinding up into a powder so you can crack open all the plant cells and get the chemicals out and then dilute it. And the best way to dilute and extract chemicals quite often is by using a bit of alcohol. So early ways to dilute it would have been using wine or port or perhaps stronger spirits like brandy. By the 19th century, it was one of the largest imports of, of American drugs imported to Europe. Demand started to outstrip supply, and it started to be over-harvested in the world by some unscrupulous harvesters. And as this happened, and as the 19th century grew older, and different empires started to look further afield to colonise new areas, quinine started to gain extra significance for them. Around the early 1900s, different countries, particularly the Dutch and the British, started to look into how they could get hold of this tree for themselves to cultivate. Quinine was used all the way up to the Second World War when supplies from Indonesian plantations got cut off. Unfortunately, using quinine to control the ability to colonise other areas is, is not a very nice thing to think about. And for the British and the Dutch to get 
hold of these trees, they were going to have to basically smuggle them out of South America. And they were justifying that as saving the seeds because of over-harvesting, which is very complicated because really nowadays you wouldn't do that. You would work with communities to bring up the, the, the cinchona bark and make it available for everybody if they chose to. Everything was different then. And unfortunately, they smuggled it out to make plantations in India and Indonesia. So in that time, that was really considered par for the core. So it was, it, people wouldn't have raised an eyebrow at all about the idea of, of taking plant material from one part of the world or taking knowledge of plant material even and applying it for themselves. But nowadays, we'd, we actually have a term for that, biopiracy, in the same way that you would pirate a, a bootleg CD or you know a copy of a film that you download off the internet. Um, we would have the same term for biological genetic information and also information about how to grow and, and use plants. Now, I should just point out here that Kim's book, Just the Tonic, A Natural History of Tonic Water, which he co-wrote with Mark Nesbitt, is a fantastic read. If you'd like to delve a little deeper into the rich history of this favorite tipple, then check it out. The Cinchona story is just one example of how a naturally occurring medicine played an essential role in the movement of people internationally. With the current conversation about the British Empire and its legacy, it's fascinating to me to contemplate whether European powers would have been able to colonize the world's tropical regions to the same extent, if at all, without this wonder drug. Or would history have unfolded quite differently it's amazing to think that this humble tree might have carried the course of history upon its delicate branches. Nowadays, scientists are investigating new substances that can be created using other alkaloids within cinchona bark. And while science is opening more doors to plant medicines every day, they are still a constant source of novel, unexpected compounds. I chatted to Dr. Bente Klitgar, Senior Research Leader in Identification and Naming and head of the Americas department at Kew. She's mostly based in the herbarium, where 7 million plant specimens are held. Her team looks after the 2 million of them from the Americas. My first visit to Kew's herbarium was oh, 15 years ago now, when I was just starting on my master's. And it's quite difficult to picture what 7 million samples is like. But to me, it was like going into a scene from Harry Potter, you know, just floor after floor in this beautiful old Victorian building, of course, with some modern uh, adjuncts now. And a herbarium is, to, to an untrained eye, just millions of pressed flower specimens. They it's are. like some kind of someone's hobby just went really out of control. <laughs> why is it important to have so many just pieces of plants squished between paper? They are the ultimate evidence. And from that, if you because we don't just have one of each plant species, we have about 80 percent of the biodiversity in terms of, of the generic level, which is a bit scientific, represented in the in Cusabarum. So Cusabarum is one of the best global collections in the world. And, we, and as I said, we can use it for any type of research because we don't have, have only one of each species. We have the whole distribution range. I have some plants that I have known ever since I started my career in botany, and these are you know, the legume family that I have been specializing. I've been doing many things in my career, but the legume family has always been part, you know, been my friend all the way along. So peas and, and beans, the legume family. It's such a massive family, and this includes everything from tiny little herbs in the Arctic tundra, exactly. right yeah. up to giant Amazonian trees. 
Yes, some of the some of the biggest emergents in the Amazon are legumes as well. So I'm going to show you some of my my very very best friends and my first legume friend. It's a it's a genus called Brownia, and I started working on this genus called Brownia. They're rainforest trees. They occur only in in northwestern South America, and I can show you. Wow! Look at that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, so you know, at Cuba, we're very. I'm very, very lucky. There's one in the palm house, which is Baunia coccinea, and there's one in the uh, Princess of Wales Conservatory called Baunia gantiseps. So when I feel, you know, I've, when I miss them, I can go into the into one of these greenhouses, <laughs> and they flower as well. They're fantastic. They get up to the football size. It looks like something straight out of the movie Avatar. Oh, it's uh, like a giant pom-pom flower with these really, really long filaments that are coming out of it. Um, almost yeah. like you got a big fistful of the showiest rhododendron and stuck them all together exactly. and just made them look even more exotic. As a young scientist, I decided to work on this group for my master's thesis. So I, I went and my, my task was to to understand the, the brownia species in Ecuador, that was one task. And the other task was then to understand how the brownia species were, were used in Ecuador. And I wanted to write a book about, you know, children who live in the rainforest. So I, I got a, you know, I actually got myself a deal with a, with a publisher. <laughs> so, and, and I went and visited some, uh, some indigenous communities in the Amazon at the same time. So I realized... Talk about was... multitasking there. Is there anything <laughs> you can't do? <laughs> it transpired that some indigenous tribes in northern Ecuador, they use actually use uh, one brownia species, the brownia gantiseps, for as a contraceptive. And uh, they used, in, and then I, you know, I did lots of, of literature work and I realized that actually several species had been used you know, by other indigenous tribes in Colombia, in Venezuela, in, uh, and in, in the Guianas. So it's not, it wasn't an isolated phenomenon. None of the families had more than four children. The legging family, all members of the legging family, it's been shown that they are the only family to contain a group of chemicals called flavonoids or isoflavonoids. And these flavonoids or isoflavonoids, they've been found in a species of, of clover called Trifolium subterraneum. They have this estrogenic effect. Having clues like this from naturally occurring compounds can get scientists really excited as it offers possible clues for building affordable, safe, and sustainable alternatives for human use in a lab. Bente explained why research like hers is so vital in the first place. It has proved viable. It has proved viable that you found one compound in one plant that is protective against cancer, and you can start to synthesize that plant. But you wouldn't have found that compound had you not found it in a plant first. And, and that covers everything from some of the most important cancer drugs used in conventional medicine yeah. to yeah. The, the leading treatment for malaria. Exactly. So, exactly. so what I want to know is, did you ever write the children's book? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> but unfortunately, I got very sidetracked by the science. Thanks for listening to Unearthed. I'll be back again in just a minute, but first, here's a message from our supporter, Kim Cottrell. As a charity, the Royal Botanic Gardens Q is facing a severe funding crisis right now. 
The impact of coronavirus has created a financial shortfall of 15 million pounds. This money is vital for the upkeep of these beautiful botanic gardens and crucial to continuing its global conservation work. Plants and fungi hold many of the answers to the world's biggest challenges, such as climate change, food security, and biodiversity loss. And Q needs to play a role in furthering the science and identifying desperately needed solutions. If there's one positive thing that could come out of this pandemic, it will be to encourage each and every one of us to look afresh and with urgency at these global challenges. If you are enjoying this podcast and feel inspired by the work that Q does, please go to Q.org to donate today to help not only protect Q, but also preserve the future of our planet. A really exciting area of Q's modern day remit lies in the evaluation of plants. And this can mean traveling far and wide to learn about new species, as well as how they're being used by local people. I'm Tom Prescott, and my job title is Evaluation of Plant Uses. I'm mainly focused on looking for potential medicines from plants and fungi. So I first fell in love with Papua New Guinea. Kind of, uh, I was working in Australia, and I decided to kind of go up there and, and have a a brief look and then later on when I managed to start to get field work funding from when I was an undergraduate I started to go there people walk around barefoot and you have to I'm quite convinced of the idea actually that if you live in a rainforest permanently shoes are of very little value to you and the reason is that just going about your day-to-day -day business walking across rainforest terrain you need that sort of tactile feedback from your feet. So, for example, when you're walking along, there's lots of deep ravines with little rivers at the bottom and you walk over essentially tree trunks that have from trees that have fallen over that act like a bridge to walk across. But the downside is if you get kind of scratched by something on your ankle, in a rainforest environment, it gets infected really quickly. After experiencing an infection himself, Tom became deeply interested in how local plants were being used to treat them. Fortunately, the antibacterial or antimicrobial properties of some plants are there to help tackle infections before they get serious. My interest is the plant medicines that are used to treat these cutaneous ulcers, so skin ulcers, um, which are really common there. They're quite debilitating and because they go deep into the tissue, they're really, really painful. There's a kind of more serious side to it, which is that they act as a possible gateway for secondary infections. So there's another kind of bacterial infection caused by trypanema bacteria. And it's sort of believed or theorized to be the case that once you have one of these little skin ulcers that all the, all the kids have got in these villages, the trypanema bacteria can then get into your body and trypanema causes something called yours disease and that that can have you know really horrific consequences it's not uncommon for plants to produce antimicrobial substances and then people who live in rainforests have adapted to their environment by learning which plants to use to put onto these um, infected skin ulcers 80% of people in Papua New Guinea live in rural areas 
And when we say rural, we don't really mean people driving around in Land Rovers in Devon. We mean people living right out in really hard to access areas. The one thing that a plant medicine has that can really win over a conventional pharmaceutical treatment, and the one thing it has that will basically beat the other treatment hands down every time, is it exists in the field and it's constantly there. Tom's fascination with local medicines available in the Papua New Guinea rainforest led him to run trials comparing how these antimicrobial plant treatments with the sorts of things you can buy over the counter in the UK. We had a serious geek out about this. This is knowledge that people in societies all over the world have potentially had for decades, hundreds, maybe even thousands of years. But it's only being reported scientifically now. And skin ulcers are something that affect millions of people worldwide. So if there's an ability to find a treatment for them uh, that is somehow more effective or even as effective as conventional therapies, then there's a real massive potential benefit to humanity here. Uh, what have we found so far? The most promising plant that we, we've been looking at is something called Ficus septica, which um, is a species of tropical fig. And also a crucial point here is that we're looking for the most common antimicrobial plant that we can find. The rationale is that we want to find clinical evidence to support the use of a traditional medicine. But the traditional medicine should be so common that anybody in any village, virtually in, in lowland Papua New Guinea, could just walk 50 yards and find this plant and use it anytime they want to. Ficus septica has really good antibacterial activity. It produces lots and lots of little figs, sort of like berry-like things. And if you walk up to Ficus septica, which is a small tree, and you can find it kind of growing pretty much anywhere in, in lowland Papua New Guinea, you pull off one of these little fruit-like things, and then this really beautiful white sap starts dripping out of the end of the berry. And the sap contains all these antimicrobial compounds. And what you notice is it produces a slight sort of reddening around where the sap has been. Nothing too extreme, but as if there's a little kind of immune response coming back, which is quite interesting. But the other thing that the plant sap does that we've seen really clearly is it forms a kind of flexible plastic kind of covering over the wound. There are flies that are attracted to these wounds and they're believed to be transmitting bacteria. And I've noticed this when I first had one of these infected wounds, they make contact with the sap. It's almost like they get a physical shock and they jump straight back and they won't go within a few millimetres of it. So you have the antimicrobial response, which gets rid of the infection. Uh, potentially, it reduces your body's reaction to that, the inflammation, uh, which can cause a lot of pain. It then seals the wound and also prevents secondary infection from insects. That's nuts. Like four different things all in one plant. Yeah, I was pretty surprised to, to see all of this. I think there is a lot more out there in the rainforest that's waiting to be discovered. It's so exciting to me to hear how the botanical world is still offering new scientific surprises and helping us find solutions to old problems as we share knowledge around the world. It makes you wonder what other undocumented answers lie within the realms of our forests, hiding in plain sight. From rainforest now to a forest of information. 
In addition to Kew's living collections of medicinal plants, the Economic Botany Collection, or ECB, holds around 25,000 items of medicinal plant materials, including the Royal Pharmaceutical Society's collection of medicines, as well as Chinese traditional medicines. I found out how we're working with plants to make medicines today with Dr. Melanie Jane Howes. So my name is Melanie Howes. So I lead research in phytochemistry and pharmacognosy at Kew. So much of my research currently involves investigating the chemistry of plants, but especially to understand their uses as medicines and also for our health, such as in our diets. It's very easy to assume that the uses of plants in medicine is, is a historical anecdote. You know, they were very interesting in the past, in the, in the Roman Empire, but in modern pharmacology, they're not used to the same extent. How accurate would you think that common belief would be? We have so many examples of pharmaceuticals which were originally discovered from plants. So some of these are the original chemical that was derived from the plant itself. Some of them are derivatives and some of them we use the plant chemical to inspire us to design a brand new medicine. And we have many of these examples available in clinical use currently. So for diseases such as dementia, cancer, heart disease, malaria and diabetes, we have many pharmaceuticals that were originally inspired or provided by plants. So we're not talking about things that are limited to herbal medicines that you might buy in a alternative remedy shop. We're talking about things that you'd get in a regular pharmacy that we prescribed on the NHS, for example. Precisely. I mean, up until around sort of the early 19th century, most people were using plants in the form of herbal medicines. So these contain mixtures of many different plant compounds. But then in the early 19th century, morphine was first isolated from the opium poppy. And this completely revolutionised how people used plants as medicine, because for the first time, we were, or humans were, isolating single chemicals from plants and then developing these as a medicine. So this is really the concept of the single active ingredient or the pharmaceutical that we are familiar with in, in modern medicine today. Opium and its derivatives are still used in modern medicine. Absolutely. I mean, opium is a source of not only morphine, but another analgesic, which was also discovered in the 1800s, which is codeine. And both of these are currently in clinical use. And we still rely on the plant to obtain these alkaloids because as humans, we can't synthesise them easily from scratch in the laboratory. But morphine isn't just used itself as an analgesic. It's actually inspired the development of many other medicines. So... This includes other analgesic medicines to help with pain, but also for other types of drugs which are used for conditions such as coughs, addiction and also Parkinson's disease. But opium also contains a completely different type of alkaloid chemical called papaverine. Now this has very different properties, so one of its effects is that it can dilate blood vessels. So this compound was used to inspire the design of a drug called verapamil, which is now in clinical use for certain heart conditions. So the opium poppy has been very important in discovering medicines which we still find useful today. 
plants are actually brilliant chemists. The story of aspirin is actually a very interesting story as a medicine because its discovery began in the mid-1700s when the bark of the willow tree was tested in people and it seemed to be useful to reduce fevers. But it wasn't until the next century that it was discovered that the willow bark contains a certain type of uh, chemicals called salicylates. And these were found to be the active ingredients of the willow bark. And they were the inspiration for the development of the drug aspirin. But then it wasn't for another 80 years or more that scientists actually uncovered its mode of action. So aspirin in the 1970s was found to inhibit the synthesis of some inflammatory substances in the body called prostaglandins. But its story doesn't end there. So even much later still, aspirin was found to have another completely new role in medicine. It was found to inhibit the aggregation of platelets in the blood. So as a result, aspirin became used more widely as a medicine to help reduce the risk of blood clots in people that could be at risk of certain heart conditions. So from the 1700s to the 1990s, we've still been making discoveries about a widely used drug originally inspired by a plant. So it isn't just about harnessing a chemical that instantly has a therapeutic effect. It can be sometimes just using it as a roadmap for inspiration. But the compounds found in plants can be useful as, a, as an ingredient in which to create drugs after. Absolutely. Much of the research we've been doing in recent years is looking at members of the mint family, so the Lamiaceae. So these are common herbs which are often used as part of our diet for flavouring food, such as sage, rosemary, lemon balm and mint. And we've found some very interesting properties um, associated with these. So we're really scrutinising their chemistry to find out which specific chemicals occur in them and how they might have potential effects that could be useful to our health, particularly if used as part of our diet. It's thought that up to 50% of medicinal plant species will be extinct by the end of the century. So it's absolutely critical that we can protect biodiversity. There is now a shift to looking at plants to use them to inspire us to discover new medicines rather than exploit them. It's so easy to dismiss plant-based medicines as merely interesting historical anecdotes, a relic from another time. Yet 80% of the human population still relies on compounds found in plants as their primary form of healthcare, with at least half of all of the most commonly prescribed pharmaceuticals being originally derived from natural sources. Unbeknownst to us, this includes a large chunk of the stuff in our own medicine cabinets. From local indigenous populations to international world-shaping cures, plants have been essential to human health since the dawn of humanity. And the reality is, even today, we're still just beginning to scratch the surface of their potential. Thanks to breakthroughs in modern technology, we're able to travel further and learn more about how we can demystify these properties to make better lives for all. And none of this would have been possible without working alongside the people who live near and use those plants, being so generous with their knowledge. These communities and the information they share can be absolutely vital to scientific discovery. 
understanding the potential applications of plants from people who've been using them for hundreds, if not thousands of years, has repeatedly proven to lead to game-changing medical discoveries. And there is so much more to learn. To me, it's quite incredible to think how much of our learning in this area has taken place in the last few hundred years, a blink in the eye in the history of our species, making use of the collection, knowledge, and tools that we expand upon every day. Now that this information is more available than ever, our next challenge is how to create a sustainable and respectful relationship between biodiversity and human progress to future-proof our planet for generations to come. The journey really has only just begun. Next time on Unearthed from Q. These leaf-cutting ants, it'll make them climb towards the light whilst the fungus finishes off the insides. And then once it's finished eating it, it bursts out and produces this little fruiting body. It's, it's drawn out and horrible. When did you last come in contact with mould, fungus and the like? Chances are you're doing it right now. And your life's a lot better thanks to this remarkable kingdom. Next time, I'll be delving into the forgotten world of fungi and finding out how little we still know about one of the most important and mysterious elements of life on Earth. Plus, I'll hear about the surprising links between psychedelic mushrooms and our mental health. About 15 years ago, we decided it was time to explore the brain science of magic mushrooms. And I think my claim to fame is that I've probably given more different kinds of drugs to human beings than anyone alive. But the good news is they're all still alive too. Make sure you don't miss it by subscribing on your podcast app now. You can share this episode with the hashtag QUnearthed and follow us at QGardens on social media. Join in the conversation with the hashtag QUnearthed. I'm James Wong. Thanks for listening.